Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues through a new series that focuses on the family. The series is called Families by the Book. In this series, we take a look at what real biblical parenting looks like in the home. Today's talk is titled, Till Death Do Us Part. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end to find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. Little history class this morning. How many of you guys remember the name Hernando Cortez? Some of us, not so much. He was a famous explorer, and in 1519, he took 600 men on a mission to seize the treasure of the Aztecs. Now, what they discovered really quick is I think their expectations were a little bit different. They weren't anticipating so much kickback. They found out very quickly the Aztecs have treasure, and they don't like to give it up. And so with all this mounting resistance and difficulty, some of his men were actually trying to sneak back onto the ships and go home. They were done. And in response to this, Cortez famously burned his ships and sunk them to the bottom of the ocean. And, and he's, he's, he was communicating to them, our path only leads forward. There is no plan B. He even said, if we go home, it will be in their ships. Now, that's commitment. There is, no, there is no other way. And so at that point, these men are gonna fight with a greater resolve and a greater, a greater fortitude, a greater commitment. And in that same way, every healthy marriage has to begin with a Hernando Cortez level of commitment. We burn our ships. You burn those little black books of names of people that you knew, people that you've dated. You're committed. In marriage, we have to be communicating to one another that there's only one path and it's forward. There's no plan B. There's no, well, if this doesn't work out, I will take the back door. I'll take a secondary option. Think back for a moment to your wedding vows. Most of you, you, you probably shared some variation of a very familiar set of marriage vows. Uh, most of them were coming from what Thomas Cranmer created, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, in his 1549 Book of Common Prayer. If you hear words like, dearly beloved, we are gathered here, you know, to have and a whole, you know, richer and poor and all that, that comes from, you can thank Thomas Cranmer for your wedding vows. But if you consider your wedding vows, you understand that your wedding vows, as you spoke them, for richer or poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part. Those are covenantal words. They're not contract words. They're covenantal words. And every marriage has to begin with a covenant, which is a binding lifetime commitment based upon my character to stay faithful to you. A contract isn't so. A contract is what we have with our cell phone companies. We came back from overseas, we, and we had to get cell service of some kind, and at that point, I just kind of went with one of the cheaper options that we found, and we went with a carrier that shall remain nameless. Let's just say they were a more discount carrier, and we found out very quickly that their service was less than reliable. We would get to anywhere outside of a city, and you immediately lost connection. You couldn't talk to people. You couldn't search the internet. It was just, it was really difficult. And so you know what we did with them? We dropped them. Because I can do that. When you're simply in a contract, there may be some uh, clauses to get out, and there may be some penalties to pay, but you can get out of a contract. A contract is a, an agreement. It's a 50-50 agreement. You do your part, and I'll do my part. I, as long as I pay my cell service you know, to my company every month, they're going to provide a service to me. But I will only keep paying in if that cell service gives me good service. It's good coverage. There's good signal. It's a good price. And at any point in time, I can reevaluate our relationship and dump it if I want to. That's a contract. Now, unfortunately, some people, we enter into marriage thinking it's a contract, not a covenant. I will love you if you love me back. I will love you if we don't encounter too many difficulties and trials. I think some people, they enter into it like some of Cortez men. You know, you, you enter in there and you had no idea the kind of opposition you were gonna face when you got married. And there is opposition because you have two people who are not flawless, 
We're sinful people. We get married and we come together. We have differing ideas. And for some people, they get into marriage and it's just more difficult than they thought it would be. And they're thinking about plan B. They're treating marriage as a contract. If you don't uphold your end of the bargain, then I don't have to. In fact, some have even changed Mr. Cranmer's vows, haven't they? What do they say at the very end of there? Instead of until uh, death do us part, you know, as long as we both shall not live, but as long as we both shall love. Have you heard that change? Some folks will say that. So they are specifically entering into a contractual relationship with them, not a covenant. But when we make a vow to one another, it's a covenant. I don't make a vow to Verizon to stay with them. At least I didn't, did any of you? I mean, none of you guys made a solemn vow before God and got dressed up to get a cell service contract. But we did do that with our mate, which showed the, the severity and the intentionality of this covenantal relationship we're entering into this binding lifetime agreement. Ephesians 5.25, it said, husbands, love your wives. Remember, husbands, which Greek word that was? It was agape. It's an unconditional love. Unconditional love, agape, can only exist in a covenantal relationship. Agape, unconditional, does not exist in a contract. I don't tell Verizon, I'll stay with you even if you drop service altogether because I'm just that much of a fanboy of Verizon. No, if you drop service for me, I'm, I'm not sending you money. Okay, so we don't enter into a covenant with a cell provider, but we do enter into a covenant with marriage, and we need to enter into it with that level of commitment that there's only one path moving, uh, and it's going to be going forward. And that will give you a great degree of resolve to make this the best marriage that you possibly can have. Number one, we're going to see here that God never intended divorce for mankind, because it is so painful. Mark 10, eight through nine says, the two shall become one flesh and they no longer two, but one flesh. So therefore what God, that's the key word there, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Does that sound like a contract or a covenant to you? You're scaring me. It's, it's a covenant, isn't it? This is something that God has put together. It's not something that man put together when, uh, because the motivation behind a covenant, it's entirely selfless. Contracts are selfish. I will only stay with you so long as you meet my needs. Covenants are, I will stay with you because of the nature and character of who I am. I love, Bible says, we love because Christ first loved us. And that's, and that's how Christ loved us. Romans 6, 23, while we were yet sinners, not deserving anything from God, he died in our place. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is, those are covenantal words. The reason that we, are, that we should never perish is not because of any good in ourselves, it's because of the love of God. It's, God is choosing to enter into a covenantal relationship with us. Jesus, every time we take the Lord's Supper, that, that juice cup is a reminder of the new covenant, Jesus says, in his blood. Aren't you glad Jesus isn't in a contractual relationship with you? That if you do wrong, he's gonna withdraw his salvation. If you do wrong, he's going to withdraw his love. I mean, how scary is that? This is, Jesus says, it's a covenant in my blood. The very nature of the fact that our salvation is a covenant means you can't lose it. Once you enter into that covenant with God, he does not let you go, nor shall any man pluck you out of his hand. That's the nature of a covenant. And God says, this is the basis of even our wedding vows. This is the basis of how husbands agape their wives. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about it's, it's me giving all that I am to you and you giving all that you are to me. It's not a 50-50 contract. 1 Corinthians 7, 4 says, the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but his wife does. So I give you all of me no matter what you give me in return. But God also commands you, give you give all that you are to me without expecting any in return. Now, in an ideal godly relationship, both of you are giving 100% at that point. But we don't just give insofar as I, re I receive back. If, you know, I'm only gonna love you if you love me in the way that I think you should. Those are contractual terms. Those are terms of an agreement that you will break. Now, Jesus had something to say about that kind of love, didn't he? where you only love someone if they will give you that love in return. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors were so hated in that day, they were just, it was just assumed, if you're a tax collector, you're going to hell. I mean, that really was the thought. So he says, don't even lost people do that? That they will love those who love them? He says, there's, there's nothing divine about your love if you only love when it's deserved. If you only love when they're loving you back. He says, you're loving with the same kind of love that an unsaved person gives somebody. Now, because marriage is a covenant, God never intended divorce to begin with. I'm going to refer here to Malachi chapter 2. Yes, the clean section of your Bible that you never go to for your quiet time. Nobody ever comes and says, hey, pastor, guess what I learned in Malachi today? But today, you won't be able to say that. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 to 16 gives God's attitude toward the marriage covenant and even divorce. He says, Does, did not he make them one? with a portion of the spirit in their union. And he goes on to say, so guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying here, he's beginning by saying, did he not make them one? This is God. When we get married, we make a vow not to a pastor, not to Andy Griffith, you know, justice of the peace. We're not even making a vow to some dude at Bubba's Chapel O Love in Vegas, okay? We're not making a vow to a person. We're not making a vow to a county or some governmental institution. When we get married, we're making a covenant and a vow to God because God is the one that makes us one. He is the one that created marriage. By the way, that's a point that needs to be made too, isn't it? Who created marriage? Is this, is this bizarre behavior that many of you just kind of coupled together, men with women? Is that just herd behavior? Is it just some bizarre phenomena of nature? No, it's something that God created. And if God created marriage, only God can define the outline of marriage. Only God can say what constitutes marriage. And God said, the man, so shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and those two, a man and a woman, become one flesh. So society does not get the right to define what God created. Well, in marriage, Malachi continues to speak to this. He says, do not be faithless without faith to the wife of your youth. In other words, when we get married, we tend to be on the younger side of things. You know, back in the days when we were so proud to show people our pictures, we got senior pictures, and we got all these other pictures and wedding pictures, and it's when we were young and we're beautiful, and there's, you know, we, we haven't yet had to deal with, with wrinkles and weight around our waist, and we haven't had to deal with medical stuff that goes on. You married this woman in her prime, men. He says, don't be faithless to the wife of your youth. You married her in her prime, and when you did that, you entered a covenant with her. I'm going to stay with you even when you don't look like this anymore. I'm going to be with you here three kids and 40 pounds later. I'm going to be with you even after we go through health issues. I'm going to be with you if we go bankrupt together. I am going to stay with you. He, so there's a vow that we make to this, this woman and woman to this man in our youthfulness. And he says, we are not to be faithless. Now, in the original Hebrew here, Malachi 2.16 says this, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. You say, well, that's not what my ESV says. You'll notice if you have an ESV that there's a footnote here. In Hebrew, there can be some, there's gonna be some interpretive differences because if you study Hebrew, Hebrew does not have vowels. Imagine English without vowels. There'd be a lot of words that look very similar and it's context then that controls the meaning. And so there's debate here as to whether or not the hatred is of the man to his wife, he doesn't love her, or is it the hatred of God toward divorce because of what it does to the covenant? I believe it's the latter, that God hates divorce because he says it covers a man's garment with violence. Now, what does that mean? Violence, he's talking about, literally, it's talking about blood spatter, okay? Not to be too graphic here, but if somebody's going to commit a violent murder, they're gonna violently wound somebody, you're not gonna just walk out in public and nobody will see any evidence of it. You're gonna have blood spatter on your clothing. And that clothing, they didn't have tied stain sticks back then. So, you know, that blood gets in your clothes, you're gonna carry that around, and you didn't have 15 changes of clothes. You're wearing that robe. 
And it's going to have blood on it, and it's going to mark you. It's going to brand you. It's going to be something that sticks with you. So divorce isn't some simple little thing that we just kind of were done with. It says it's a messy affair, and it's going to, the effects of a divorce are going to stay with you the rest of your life. God hates divorce because God never intended for you to experience that ongoing pain the rest of your life. Now, as I say this, I realize I'm not preaching to a church full of people who've never been divorced. There are many of us here who have gone through this. Can I just share with you gently, this message is not meant to stigmatize those who have been in divorce. The, the, the purpose of this message is not to make you feel worse than you already feel for having experienced what could be one of life's most horrifically challenging and painful experiences you can go through. Instead, you are the ones who would probably agree if you can't, if you don't have to get divorced, please don't do it. You're going to be the ones, those of you who have been through a divorce, you know the pain. You know what God's talking about here when he says it's, a, it's something that, that sticks with you. The pain remains with you, and you would encourage others, if at all possible, you need to avoid divorce. So this isn't to stigmatize those who've been through divorce. We love you, and I think God can bring you to a place of uh, restored relationships. I believe God can even give you a, a blessed and new relationships beyond this and a, a blessed and happy and godly home. Okay, so this isn't to beat up on people who've been through a divorce, but this is a solemn warning. Guys, this was never God's intention. Take very seriously the covenant of marriage. So despite hating divorce and despite the fact that marriage is a covenant, God still provides very few, but some outlets, some options to dissolve this union. There's very few though. One of those is, we're gonna see point number two, sexual immorality can permit a divorce. I say can, it doesn't have to, but it can permit. Now. You need a little context before we jump into Matthew 19. In Jesus' day, there was great debate about divorce because surprisingly, people didn't always get along back then either, right? So husbands and wives didn't always see eye to eye just because they were Jews, just because they were believers in God. And so there was a great deal of debate as to when can you or can you divorce? And so there were two rabbis at the heat in the central of this debate. One was Rabbi Hillel, the other was Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Hillel, his interpretation of divorce was by far the most popular one because of his loose interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. And that is the heart of their debate. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, let's pause. What he's talking about here is, the key word is indecency. What does that word mean? When can a man give a writ of divorce to his wife? Well, Hillel said, anything that causes the man to be displeased with the woman so that she does not find favor is, leads to an equitable divorce. So if she gets grouchy with him, he can be like, do I need to divorce you? And, and literally, all you had to do was say it three times. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And, she, and that was a legal divorce, and you're done. That's all it took. And then he could send her walking with papers. And so if she goes through a difficult time, he could go, I divorce you? Don't make me say it twice. Okay? And that's, what, and that's the way it was. It was, just, it was an easy, just easy out. She burns the pot roast. Honey, do I need to say it? You know? And so there was always this threat of, I may be with you, I may not be with you. At any point in time, I can unload you. And why do you think this was the most popular interpretation of Deuteronomy 24? Because it's easy. Because it helps me to get out of my poor choices. It helps me, I don't have to live unconditionally now. I don't have to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Wives don't have to be kind and respectful and loving to their husbands. We can just be whatever I want to be, and now I can be selfish in my marriage, and if you aren't okay with that, I can broom you into the street and find a woman who is okay with that. And God finds that to be an abomination, that you would treat this marriage partner, this covenant, so just glibly and without real, real thought. So Rabbi Shammai challenged this interpretation, had a very narrow view of Deuteronomy 24.1. And he said, and, and for good reason, by the way, this Hebrew word for indecency, 
And not to be too graphic, moms, you need to cover your kids' ears and make them hum the national anthem. This is the time to do it. But this word indecency literally means to uncover someone's nakedness. So for a man to be displeased with his wife means that he has discovered that she has uncovered the nakedness of someone else. It's another way of saying that she was committing adultery. So that is what this Hebrew word means. There is indecency, there is adultery. And so with this little bit of knowledge and context now, let's read Matthew, okay? The book of Matthew in chapter 19. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He's quoting Hillel there. And Jesus, he answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What was Jesus' answer? Divorce was never in the equation. God never wanted you to divorce to begin with. Why are you looking to get out of this divorce so easily? And then they said to him, why then did Moses command one of those certificates of divorce to send her away? And he said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. God never intended this. But because you were hard-hearted, God permitted uh, these writs of divorce to be given out. It wasn't an ideal situation, but it protected the woman because imagine in those days, a woman, she couldn't hold land. Um, a lot of times work was difficult for her to find and her only option is return to her father's house. If he's still there, she may end up be uh, made into a beggar. And so God see this is a vile thing. And so he says, if you're gonna be hard hearted and divorce her, like I told you not to, but if you're hard hearted enough, you're gonna push forward and you're gonna do it anyway, Here's at least a way to protect the woman. It's sort of like if a lady has a baby and she doesn't want to keep the child. You know, there's places she can take that child. I don't know, can you take her to the fire station or not? I don't know if you can do that anymore, but like, I can't deal with this child, no questions asked, you deliver this child over. That is a concession because there are some people who are gonna unload their baby. Now, this isn't something we encourage all children, all, all people to do. Go ahead and have all the babies you want, just take them to Steve, he'll take them. You know, he has no problem taking in all those babies. That's not the ideal, that's not what we want, but it's there to make a bad situation not worse than it needs to be. That's what Jesus is saying. Quit looking for easy out divorces, try to find a way to make it work because that was God's initial plan. So Jesus favors a very strict interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, except for adultery. Okay? That is the only reason, really, that he is outlining here that, that you can divorce, but I will say you don't have to divorce. Because I know there's, we're not also not preaching to a church full of people who have never encountered marital unfaithfulness, or you have a friend, or you have a family member, or coworker, and you're wondering right now, I've been through this, and I'm struggling with this, do I just up and leave my mate because they cheated on me? Can I tell you, whatever you're feeling in your heart, don't, don't process this alone. Go get help, get godly counsel, make no snap decisions. I see, it's, it, when you've been betrayed and you've been hurt, one of our initial human responses is to get revenge. I actually had uh, someone in one of my previous churches, the husband cheated on his wife. And she turned around and just found the first guy that was willing to be with her, and she cheated on him back as an act of revenge. That marriage didn't last much longer than that. So whatever you do, don't just make a snap decision. Fine, you're gonna cheat on me. Enjoy being alone, you know. We, it's going to hurt you even more if you're not willing to work through some of these things. So what I encourage people to do is, if you have a husband, and this is not a habitual, ongoing thing, but it's like, it's, it's kind of a one-time deal here, and he is penitent, he's in tears, this man is broken. I say the man, obviously in adultery, there's a man and a woman, but I'm seeing this from a man's perspective. If this guy or this woman is willing to work through this, my counsel to godly Christian couples is work it out. Find a way to, to find a divine level of forgiveness for this person. You can come to the other side in a, in a healed way. You don't have to lead, it doesn't have to lead to divorce. In fact, Jesus, at one point in time, there was a, a harlot 
who had been forgiven by Jesus and she was aware through society how great her sins were and she was anointing his feet with oil and wiping his feet with her hair and the Pharisees who are self-righteous and didn't see themselves as having much of any sin, they look at her and go, look at that sinner. You know, and they just, they, they, they scoffed at her and they scoff at Jesus. They had very little love for Jesus because frankly, they didn't feel like they needed forgiven to begin with. But this woman was aware that she was forgiven much. And Jesus said, if you, you, know, if you ever want to refer to it, Luke 7, 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, okay? So her being forgiven much caused her to love much. But he who is forgiven little or perceives that he is forgiven little will also love very little. So Jesus is giving us a principle here that when we forgive somebody, it's not like you've been walked on. You have demonstrated Christ-like forgiveness who God, he, he told Israel that they committed spiritual adultery on him insomuch as God even had Hosea marry a prostitute don't you kids go out and do that. But he had her marry a prostitute as an object lesson for Israel that you keep straying away to other lovers, but I as your God will continue to love you and come back to you, not to scold you, but to speak gently with you. That's how our God is. And if we're gonna mirror God's love, I think as mates, avoid the greater difficulty and the greater pain of divorce by learning to work through that betrayal. And that's what it was. You've been wronged. But can you be wrong for God's sake and then choose to love them and restore that person? He who is forgiven much will also love much. That your marriage can come to a deeper place of love, sensitivity, and intimacy on the other side of betrayal than maybe what you had before it. Number three, we see here that widows in in unmarried may remarry in the Lord. If you want to turn with me, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To understand 1 Corinthians 7, the entire chapter is devoted to marital love and commitments and relationships. To understand 1 Corinthians 7 correctly, we need to know that he is speaking to multiple different types of groups and peoples and situations. The first five verses, he's speaking to those Corinthian church members who are married. But then he also speaks to virgins. Virgins clearly is someone who is not married, but more than just unmarried, that's someone who's never been married before because as soon as you get married, you lose that status of virgin. So he's speaking to virgins, those who are single, never been married. But then he refers to another class of people who he calls unmarried and widows. Okay, widows, we don't really need to define that too much. We understand what a widow is. Her husband died. But what does unmarried mean? Well, unmarried, Paul distinguishes them from virgins. So clearly this is not someone who's never been married or he would have classified them as a virgin. So an unmarried person is someone who's been married before, but they're not a widow, which means that their mate is still alive and not dead. So what do we call a person who has been married but isn't now, but whose mate is still living? What are they? They're divorced. So unmarried, Paul is speaking to divorced peoples who are not married, they're not virgins, they're not widows. He's talking to the divorce. Now, he gives a command here to both the unmarried and the widows at the same time because there was a debate in the church whether or not they should be allowed to remarry. And Paul simply answers that question. In verse eight, he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, to the divorced and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So to both the widows and to the unmarried, he allows you to be remarried. I mean, that's what he says. if If you cannot exercise self-control or whatever, you feel this burning in your heart that you desire to be married again, he says, let them be married. Better that than to be single, but constantly burning and longing to be married once again. But if you look further down in the text, he gives a qualification to this, specifically to the widows, but clearly this applies to anybody who's getting married, including the unmarried that he just gave permission. Verse 39 says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies... She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, what does that only in the Lord mean? 
To be in the Lord, we've seen that terminology before, to be in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passing away, all things are becoming new. So to be in Christ or in the Lord, it just means that you're born again. Because when we're saved, it's not like God just hands us a box that we open it up and it has eternal life in it. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that we are baptized by one spirit into his body. The reason we have eternal life is because we're in Christ and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Colossians 3 will say, when Jesus, who is our life, appears, we'll appear with him. So someone who is in the Lord is somebody who's been immersed by the Holy Spirit into the life of Jesus. They are a believer. So he's saying that if you are divorced, if you are a widow, you are free to remarry. But then he gives a qualification, only in the Lord. What is he saying then? That a believer is only free to marry another believer. I mean, that's what that means. It's corroborated elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Now, I realize that when I talk about how believers are only to marry other believers, you're gonna have people who are going to be like, but I have an exception. I, I got done preaching this once at one of my previous churches. I had a lady come up after my service and says, you can't preach that. That's your opinion because my husband... I married him as an unbeliever, and the only reason he's a believer today is because he married me. At that point, you're preaching from pragmatism, not from truth. Yes, it worked that way for you, but for the vast majority of people who get married to unbelievers, that's not how it ends. And even if that is how it ended for you, that isn't what God intended. Marriage, hear me say this, marriage is not an evangelism tool. Everybody hear that? Marriage is not an evangelism tool. Ladies, you don't marry a man for what he might be. You don't marry a man for who he may become. He might believe someday. He might finally become romantic. Can I tell you, for, ask the ladies around you, do men tend to become more sweet, more kind, and more romantic, more thoughtful, more sensitive to your needs after 30 years of marriage than when you're dating some maybe you're walking with the Lord, but for a lot of guys, your average run-of-the-mill Joes, if he's not paying attention to you now, ladies, there's not a lot of hope that in your marriage, all of a sudden he's gonna go, wow, I'm married now. I have duties and responsibilities to my wife. I shall be very sensitive and tender to her needs and, and you know, give her cards. And, and I've never done this before, but I'm gonna start writing her love notes. And I've never done this before, but I'm gonna start taking her out on dates and actually going where she wants to go. You don't marry a man for who he could be. You don't marry a woman for who she could be. You marry them who they are right now. And if God never changed them, you would be happy with them right where you are. And that includes their walk with Jesus, that they are born again and that they are walking closely with him. So he gives that qualification. He says, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, you are not to be unequally yoked. Now, most of y'all probably didn't use a yoke this last week. I'm not talking egg yolks, right? We're talking those big wood things. The, the things you see on the wall at the Cracker Barrel when you eat there, big wood yoke with the hoops and you, you put a couple of oxen together and you move them forward. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. A yoke was something that you put two like-kind creatures together to do a common purpose, most often to plow a field, to pull a cart, and so you would put two oxen together and the two together could accomplish a lot more than each of them individually. That's what a yoke was for. So the Bible says don't be unequally yoked. That word unequally yoked is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 22 in verse 10. He's talking about, did you know that it was actually in the Old Testament law that you couldn't put an ox and a donkey together in the same yoke? You say, boy, God had some really unique laws in that Old Testament. I couldn't wear cotton polyester shirts and I couldn't put donkeys and oxen together. Well, God had a reason for this law. You put an ox and a donkey together, they have very dispos different dispositions. One wants to do this, one wants to do that. One wants to go this way, one wants to just sit there and dig his hooves into the ground. One is much bigger than the other. They have different desires in life, different sensibilities. And so you put a donkey and an ox together in a yoke, what's gonna happen? You're gonna be frustrated because you're not gonna get any work done. It's gonna destroy everything you're doing and you're gonna hurt the ox and you're gonna hurt the donkey. Everybody gets hurt in the end. This is the reference that 
that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Don't be unequally yoked. You don't put a donkey and an ox together in the same yoke. You want different things in life. You are of different strengths. You have different values, and you can try to do that, but it's going to hurt you. Now, why would a donkey, or why would a farmer ever put an oxen and a donkey together? It's convenient. Well, I got this, don- this, this here ox, and I got to get this job done. I guess I got this donkey here, too. It's better than nothing. I'm just going to make it work. And rather than waiting to get another ox, out of convenience and expediency, they go ahead and just try to make it work, and it doesn't. Same thing with a Christian. Why does a Christian marry an unbeliever? It's out of convenience. I don't want to wait for a, another a godly believer to yoke together with in life, but I do have this here donkey. I mean, that's not an insult, by the way, to you men. But, you know, I got this donkey here, and I could just, yeah, it's not what God intended, but I think I can make it work. And what's going to happen is your donkey's going to be mad, your ox is going to be mad, and it's just going to, it's going to destroy what you're trying to do. And so God cautions us. I think there's a word of warning here. Ladies, guys, a lot of times when you're single, you think that my life isn't going to be happy until I'm married. How many of you married couples? That worked for you, okay? That your life, just as soon as you got married, trouble-free, nothing but sensitivity, love, romance, intimacy, all my needs completely fulfilled and met daily for the rest of my life. Is that what you're experiencing? If so, you need to write a book because the rest of us don't live there. So your happiness is not dependent upon whether or not you get married, Even if you stayed single like Paul did, your happiness can't be dependent upon another human. Otherwise, you're gonna spend the rest of your life trying to extract happiness out of them. And only God can provide that to you. There is a great, much greater loneliness inside of a bad marriage than being single. And so we've gotta be cautious there. So he says people are free to remarry only in the Lord, but there's a group of people in verses 10 to 11 that he says are not free to remarry. He says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's simply saying that Jesus has spoken into this too. He says the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Who's he talking about here? In this particular case, he's talking to Corinthian believers. He says, if two of you as believers are married together, he says, you're not supposed to split up. You're not supposed to divorce. He says, remain together, or he says, be reconciled to them or remain single. God doesn't permit, outside of adultery, God doesn't permit these believers to get remarried again. Now, what if you're in a situation where you're a believer and you've, you've divorced from another believing mate And then during that time, one of those mates commits adultery. Well, at that point, you're under Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and you would be free to remarry. But outside of that, there is no other clause that God gives you, and it's just a choice at this point. Do I obey God, or do I do do it my own way? My dad built a house for a couple that kind of did it their own way. It was just a couple that was just going through a, I mean, everybody knew they were going through a very contentious time. And so they had a unique solution to this problem. They had my dad build out their house in such a way that there was a full house on top and a full house on bottom. You see, they didn't want to get divorced because of financial reasons, but they also couldn't stand to look at each other. And so they built out, they had a living room, bedroom, bathrooms, everything you needed on the top floor and on the bottom floor even had a walkout to a different, a different driveway. And so these, this couple, they could live together, not be divorced, but also never have to interact with each other. Can I just say that wasn't God's intention either? And men, if you've got a napkin out right now and you're scratching out that kind of dream home, you need to probably stop. That's not God's plan. Well, at least I didn't get divorced. God wants us to be one flesh, not just living in the same time zone, but that we're in a one flesh relationship with one another. Finally, number four, we see here, if an unbeliever leaves you, divorce and remarriage is permitted. See, believers, again, did not marry unbelievers back then, but a very common situation would be you get two unbelievers, they get married, one of them gets saved, and now their life radically alters to want to follow Jesus. They want to go to synagogue. They want to, they want to give money to the Lord. They want to serve their time. They want to give it to the Lord. And for some unbelievers, that's going to be a very difficult spot that, that puts them in. You're not the woman I married. And you know what? They're right. You've changed. Well, Paul speaks into this situation. He says, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, to the rest, I say, 
I, not the Lord, doesn't mean it's not inspired. It just means Jesus hasn't specifically spoken on this issue. But he says to the rest. In other words, you're not a virgin. You're not unmarried. You're not divorced. You're not widowed. Uh, it's not because of adultery. It's not two married believers. It's a believer with the unbeliever. It's the rest of you guys, a situation many of them were in. He says to the rest, I say, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. But if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, if he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So the command is clear. If today, for whatever reason, you are married to an unbeliever, as a believer, you stay with them. Why do we have to command that? Because some of us, we thought it would be a great idea to marry an unbeliever or whatever, we find out, wow, why isn't my husband loving me as Christ loves the church? because he can't. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit within him. And you'll come to church and you'll see all these husbands who look really great on the outside. Their wife can give you the true story. You know, but they look really great on the outside and he looks like he's loving his wife as Christ loves the church. And you begin to long for that and you begin to dream of what it'd be like to have a Christian husband. God says, don't leave him. Stay with that fellow. If he's willing to have you. Verse 14, he explains why. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. As it is, they are holy. When he says holy here, it's not like just being married to a believer gets you into heaven. But what he's saying here is, if you're already married, use that now as an opportunity for a gospel witness, that they might be saved or made holy through your lifestyle, through your preaching, your testimony to them. Same thing with your children. Stay with them. Stay with that marriage for that sake. First Peter 3, 1 through 2 shows how we can influence them, their heart toward Christ. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that's what God calls an unbeliever, someone who doesn't obey the word of God, that they might be one without a word by the conduct of their, your wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He says, If you do that well, before you go, don't be nagging him to go to church. Don't be getting on to him, you know, about his cigarettes. Don't be getting on to him about his language. Don't be just trying to make him act like a Christian. Instead, preach with your life first. Be respectful, be loving, even if they're not. Be kind and gentle, even if they're not. Make them beg to find out, why do you treat me this way when I'm, I so don't deserve this? And now you preach the gospel. Now you share with him how Jesus has made a difference in your life. Well, you say, what if that doesn't work? What if I'm married to this guy, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to, I'm loving, kind, respectful, submissive, and kind, and, you know, and I put his knees before my own, I do all these things, and he never comes to Jesus, can I leave him now? No, we cannot. We don't do things, by the way, as Christians because it works. We do it because it's right. And God says this is right. However, you're going to have some relationships where you're going to have an unbeliever and a believer married together, and the unbeliever says, you know what, I'm done with you. I've had it with all your Jesus talk. I've had it with all your going to church. I've had it with your wanting to give to the Lord and serve the Lord. Lord, 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 that's all you want to talk about. I'm done with you. And what if an unbeliever wants to leave a believing mate? Do you know the Bible even speaks into that? Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, he says, let it be so. By the way, separate here doesn't mean separate like we use it in America. Oh, we've separated for a while. Not divorced, but we're separated. This word for separate is talking about divorce. If you have an unbeliever who wants to separate, he says, let it be so. You can allow as a believer for your unbeliever to initiate a divorce with you, but you don't do it with them, is what he's saying. He says... Uh, if they separate, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, this needs a little bit of explanation here. Enslaved here, we talk about slaves. You and I, we think of Alex Haley's roots, Kunta Kinte, you know, in the American Civil War. That's not how Jews saw slavery because the Jews, for a Jew to have a slave, it was an indentured servant. It was a contracted worker. You would come into this relationship. They would take care of you. You would serve them for a period of six years. In the seventh year, your master would give you this large sum of money to start your life over again. It was a mulligan. It was a redo. And you would go out and start your life over again, and you're free. So uh, slaves, when the Bible talks about slavery, and some people criticize, well, the Bible doesn't you know, condemn slavery. The Bible isn't talking about slavery like you and I do. You need to know that. 
So he says here, you're literally not enslaved. So as a master, at the seventh year, you give them money, you send them out, they are free. They can find another master if they want, or they can work for themselves and remain alone, single, if you will. That is the terminology that Paul is using here. If an unbelieving husband leaves a believing wife, let it be so, you're no longer enslaved. You're no longer under a contract with them. And now you then are free in the same way to find a new mate, or if you want to, just stay single. That's what's being communicated in 1 Corinthians 7. But this was just for unbelievers. Now, before we end, and we're, we're, ending, this, we're ending the message right here, pretty quick. It needs to be said, how do we avoid divorce to begin with? Now, some of you guys are thinking, well, you just need to love unconditionally. You just need to try harder. You just need to go out on dates. Can I tell you the number one thing you can do in your life to avoid a divorce to begin with? And, and I'm speaking here to this crowd right, right here. The best way to avoid divorce is get our kids while they're young. You teach them how to date well. You see, most of us, we're not India. You don't go to a matchmaker. You don't just get arranged in your marriage. A lot of times these guys here, we're just like, I don't know. Jackson, who do you want to date? What are you looking for in a girl? You know? Go ahead, share with us. That's just kind of how we approach dating. Do you know dating is, the most, is one of the most important things that you can do in life. The most significant decisions you make in life relate to dating, not anything else. We always tell our children the second greatest decision of your life is who you spend time with outside of Jesus. Because you can go to a college and not have it pan out, and it's okay, you can do well. You can get a career that you don't like, and you can change careers. You can live in Ashland, you can live in Boston. That's not a big deal, but who you marry has the greatest influence on whether or not you live a godly, holy, happy, healthy life than anything else you do outside of Jesus. But a lot of times in that department, we just give our kids free reign. Well, I don't know, what do you wanna do? What do you want, Morgan, what do you wanna do? What are we thinking here? Who you got your eyes on? And we just, we just kinda let people play around as if dating is a game. Can I tell you in the Bible, there is no such thing as dating to get to know people. You don't date to get to know people. You get to know them to see if they're date worthy because what is date ultimately supposed to lead to? Marriage, dating, if I could give you guys one piece of counsel here, it's this, don't date for fun. Don't just find the first guy that's cute, the first girl that's cute, the first one that makes you laugh, the popular one, cheerleader, the football player. Don't just pick somebody because they're popular, they make you feel good. Dating is not just for fun. You can have fun and still go out with them in groups of friends and have a great time. But a lot of times we let people enter casually into dating and it leads to very bad relationships. And you can date a guy that really was never good for you, but you've been with him so long, you kind of feel like, man, we've been dating for four years now, probably should get married. Were they good for you? I don't know, but we've been dating so long. Or worse yet, you get into dating so long, relationships are meant to consummate at some point. And so you get into the physical, you get into premarital sex, and premarital sex always feels like love. It always feels like love. Premarital sex will always either harm a good relationship or prolong a bad one, always. And so premarital sex is lighter fluid, and it burns up quick. Wow, I feel so great. Somebody loves me that deeply and intensely. Do they or is it lust? We've gotta be careful with that one. And we, we, so parents, what I'm asking for you to do is be involved with your child's life as they're pursuing dating relationships. Help them pursue dating relationships that are healthy, that are godly, and at a time when your child is actually seriously considering marriage on the horizon. Prior to that, just have fun as friends. And then you can see people what they're really like. When you're dating, they all act like whatever you want them to be. It's hard to tell what that person's really like. When you're just in a friend relationship, you can see them what they're really like. And so the most important thing we can do to avoid divorce, frankly, moms and dads, is to be very active in our children's dating life and not just treat it as a rite of passage. Age 16, you get to do it because of this age and just go out and have fun and I hope you don't mess up your life. We teach our children what dating is. It's leading to marriage and we choose it based upon specific criteria. Believers, godly people, loving and serving God and that will lead to healthier marriages that won't lead to mistakes later that you feel like you need to divorce from. That's probably a whole sermon right there that could be preached but parents, this is important. How many of you guys entered into a, dated poorly, entered into a relationship you shouldn't have and that's why you got divorced? There's probably many of you we're done. For the rest of us, marriage, it's a covenant, not a contract. 
We stay faithful to one another, not because of what I get from you, but because we love because he first loved us. I love you because it's who I am. I love you because it demonstrates my character to remain committed to you, to be faithful to the wife of my youth. After all, isn't that what we vowed? Till death do us part. Let's close. Father, we thank you this morning as we study your plan for marriage and the fact that divorce was never part of that plan. God, I realize there are people here who are suffering and hurting, and as I'm preaching this message, it's opening up some raw wounds for them. God, I pray for those who are divorced here today, that they would not feel stigmatized. Instead, that we would feel compassion for those who have endured one of the most painful, gut-wrenching rejections and pain that a person can experience in life. Pray as a church we'd come around them and help them to find healthy and godly relationships. I pray for God those who aren't married yet, those who are just looking to date, that you would help them find partners that are in the Lord, people who know you, people who are born again, people who are serving you actively. Pray that even within this church that those of our, our young people who are looking to get married someday, that they would, they would hold out for another who's of like kind, that they would be yoked with somebody who has similar desires and values that we would have relationships that would mirror the picture of Jesus' love for the church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.